0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 40 of the Krause House Podcast. 40 is a good one, man. We had a dry spell there with some horrible numbers, but the one jumping out to me right away is the Rain Man himself, Sean Kemp. Dude was a legend. Who's jumping out to you rocking 40? You seem like a Cody Zeller kind of guy.
1: Cody Zeller. You know what I see here is a Brad Miller, Chicago Bulls 0102. That's a nice one right there.
0: This is my favorite guy. I feel so bad for him. Irvin Johnson. But not magic. I can't imagine how many times that's been con- confusing. And he played for the Lakers. So, oh, dude. Can, dude! can you imagine? imagine you're like, uh, yeah, I'm actually uh, I'm in the NBA, and they're like,
1: "What? Hey, you're in the NBA?" Like, yeah, I played for uh, the Los Angeles Lakers. And like, wow, what's your
0: name? You're like, Irvin Johnson. And like, oh,
1: you're a Magic John? No,
0: not no, that. not that one. Not as, <laughs> not nearly as magical. Oh. Yeah, that that's a funny one. The OG himself, Udonis Haslam,
1: Linda hey, Campbell. Boban's on that list for a brief stint with the
0: Spurs. Yeah, Sean Kemp, though, I think he's got to be the winner. For sure the winner, dude. So I, I like watching highlights of him retroactively. Dude, I don't think he gets enough credit for a translatable game. Dude, that guy would be a beast today, I feel like. I feel like he's got the size, the tenacity. He's like a leaner Zion.
1: My hot take has always been that Zion's best case scenarios is a modern Sean Kemp which I think is a great ceiling. Yeah, absolutely. The dude
0: could play. Let's kick off with some NBA stuff per usual. Let's start out with the story that kind of shook up Twitter a little bit in the NBA world. The Adelaide 36ers. Dude, taking it to the Suns. It's preseason. Look, I get it. But I ran back the box score. You got 20 to 25 minutes from the starters. Guys like Cameron Payne, who have been in the league for a long time, played... I think 30, 36 minutes, right? Like they were out there. And then I think at the end of the day, right? Another takeaway is they certainly weren't trying to lose. I think anytime you get that preseason, this happens in college basketball sometime, randolph making Academy beats UVA or something like that. And everyone's like, huh! but it has usually no correlation to how the season performs. But at the same time, these guys are professionals and not trying to lose. But what were your thoughts when you first saw that? Or did you believe it? Did you catch any of the highlights or anything? What'd you think?
1: I think the first thing was that I was, I thought it was a G League team when I first saw it on the schedule. And then the second thing, once I found it, it's NBL, if I'm not mistaken, was that they did shoot lights out, which is, it's really tough, right? There's a reason we play seven game series in the playoffs is that a team can get hot It's part of the magic of March Madness. So you're going to catch these sort of upsets where clearly if this were a seven game series, I would bet pretty heavily for the Suns to go win the next four and, and, and the gentlemen's sweep, as they say. So I agree with you. It's really not that big of a deal. The MBL guys, they're talented. And if you get hot and you're shooting well from downtown, we've all had that playing a pickup game where some dude, he's a complete bum. His form is horrendous. He barely can get up and down the court playing defense, knocks down like four threes and you lose the game. You're just like, what the hell just happened? The most interesting to me was Devin Booker's whole subtweet game where he did the lebron quote being like hey these kind of losers have to go home and live their own life i thought that was kind of lame of lebron to do at that time and i think it's even lamer for booker to lean in, like just be like haha dude we lost the game dude like whatever that just felt i don't know felt like emotionally petty emotionally stunted so that part was yeah. a little off to me what did you think of that
0: yeah yeah not in love with that either but i think despite what anyone says, not nearly comparable, but the only basketball we can really talk about is our pickup games now. So it's the only thing I got. You always have the, where you beat a team that you're outmatched, right? You may beat a team that you are roughly the same, but you've been on the court for a few times. And then every once in a while, a team comes on where you're like, oh, we should easily win. And they give you a fight. I don't care what anyone says, preseason or not, stakes low or not. Like once that kind of competitive gear kicks in, like you're trying to win. Like especially if these guys are this close to the season and they're getting playing roughly half the game. I see eight took 16 shots. Like they were playing basketball. Yeah, right? were, and I'm, yeah. yeah. And I don't think to your point, like they're yeah, in a five, seven game series. It's not even a comparison, but I saw some other people chiming in talking about the parallels to other professional leagues. And I thought this was interesting. And you see this a lot in college basketball, like the starter, the starting point guard at Northern Iowa, like every once in a while, you see these guys in the tournament. You're like, "Whoa!" Like, what? These guys could play at Duke and North Carolina. There's no doubt in my mind. Like, in fact, the reason why the tournament is so special with college basketball is because you get these guys putting up 26 points a game against top Division one talent, but they're like a six six center, right? And exactly. if that same guy is six ten. He's at Michigan, right? right? He's at Kansas, and so I think that you get a lot of that with the like the NBL is a legitimate professional league. You got guys, LaMelo. We even talked to a guy in House here. Cameron got drafted by the Bulls and he's in the NBL, right? These guys are top professional talent and they're out there playing basketball. So I think it was just cool to see. Yeah, lame to answer your question, lame of Booker. But I do like the fact that it got your casual fan to notice that to get to any sort of professional league, you can hoop, like you can yeah. hoop, but you're right. I think there's saw like 60% from three on like 42 shots. Like it it's just hard.
1: It's like hard that's hard crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I think you're pointing about the height and stuff. Yeah. It's like those guys from a skill level perspective, Steph at Davidson, right. It's like clearly Steph had unbelievable skill. He didn't have the size and the believability that he was going to be at one of the top tier programs and clearly he smashed everyone's expectations and so you have many less Steph Curry style versions of that all across college basketball all across international basketball but again on average those guys are going to be bigger stronger faster better shooters but when you have a good night you have a good night and you have a couple guys have a good night and like you're pretty invincible and so kudos to the team for upsetting the Suns and again I just I don't want to repeat it but yeah like I just wish the attitude was more like when you again not to go back to pickup because no one's on ESPN ragging on me for losing the game. I, sh- I should have won at pickup. But attitude just it's head shake. It's laugh. It's dude. Good game, man. I don't know. I would tell you, you guys shot lot lights out. I'll see you out there next game. That's I feel like the vibe and sometimes these guys take it so seriously and then are so dismissive of the fans. I'm like, dude, the fans giving you shit, the analysts giving you shit like this whole thing. No one would be giving you shit if they weren't paying you millions of dollars. So you kind of have to treat it like professional wrestling a little bit. It's just like lean into the crowd booing you, laugh it off, play into it like you're playing a game. It's all good, dude. Like no one actually thinks they're better than you guys. Just chill, man. Don't remind people that they do have a shitty life that they are paying all this money to do. Like dude, like you're sending the wrong signal. Like those are your customers, dude. So that's the part that just threw me and I clearly can't get over.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, Wild. Another story that broke, I know this is a little bit more up my alley, is like uh, a follow draft. Prospect's pretty close. High school basketball, college basketball, but had an interesting matchup, which from the consensus, not only just number one overall pick, but the generational type player in Victor Webinyama, hopefully saying that right. Seven foot five, supposedly something like a 7 nine wingspan, matched up with the Ignite, so the G League team that caters more towards guys coming out of high school and giving them their one year of eligibility before going to the NBA draft, Match up with Scoot Henderson, which I think is widely regarded, I think, the number two overall pick, and they did not disappoint. Uh, I think we got 20-something from Victor and 20-something from from Scoot as well. Victor, I don't know if you caught any of the highlights, but seven for 11 from three, looked smooth, needs to put some size on, but I think you're looking at basically Giannis with a jump shot, right? At 18 years old. I think the guy is gonna be insanely dangerous. Like I said, he's a little bit thin, but dude puts on some weight. You're talking about what I think what everyone thought in 40 years the NBA was look like and this guy just shows up at the doorstep. Like handles range smooth And happens to be 7'5". Like, I I don't know. If you haven't seen this kid play, man, you have to check it out.
1: Yeah, I I watched the highlights. He's certainly incredible. The Giannis comparisons with a jump shot clearly resonate. Giannis put on a ton of muscle, obviously. I I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a bit obvious to everyone now. But as you look through his each year of progression in muscle, it's just incredible how much muscle he's able to put on that frame. I do wonder, I haven't seen like Durant be able to do that. And I'm not sure Durant really cares as much. I'm sure Durant's strong, but he's clearly not like yoked <laughs> at Giannis level. And I do wonder how different bodies genetics do pack on muscle. Is this guy's sort of muscle ceiling more Kevin Durant? Is it more Giannis? Is that a genetic thing? Is that an effort a caring thing? Because I do know Giannis is so competitive having read his book and kind of, and I know he's close to Pat Connaughton and Pat Connaughton's a big meathead. That I do wonder if Giannis just like, actually wants to be yoked. And so just literally lifts hard, eats perfect, takes it super seriously, because he's so competitive in every single thing in his entire life. Whereas Durant, it seems more like, hey, I'm really gifted. I love this game. I take it seriously, but I'm not going to go be the biggest meathead in the world too. Whereas Giannis wants to be the best soccer player, the best dancer, the best you know, video game player, the best, <laughs> this guy that's just built in his DNA. So I do wonder if he can get to the size of Giannis, depending on personality and genetics. But even if he can't, you're still talking about an incredible talent.
0: Yeah, I actually don't think the Giannis KD has anything to do with working hard. To get to someone like KD's level, the guy has put in insane hours. To be clear, I'm
1: talking muscles, just to be clear here. The difference between yoked and fit.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a business decision in the sense that the way that Giannis plays, he couldn't get by being that thin right? Um, Correct. Yeah. KD is much more skilled at the game of basketball than Giannis is. Absolutely. Giannis is insanely powerful. And he knew that, like, hey, if I want to start Euro stepping from the three-point line to get to the bucket, I need to be 60 pounds heavier. I just need to body people. And like, that was just purely decision. And I think that if KD had to make the same decision, he would. I think KD, like arguably, right? This is consensus against coaches, players in the league. Might be one of the most skilled offensive players to ever play basketball. So yeah, like, and I agree with that. Put putting on a lot of muscle doesn't do a whole lot for him. I'm sure it could help, but being that size, right? You're talking maybe 10 pounds, something like that. But like the, to be a size of Giannis didn't affect. It might even adversely affect his game to a certain point.
1: Yeah, I mean Giannis's bad jump shot could be because he's so muscular. I'm not saying yeah. it is, but certainly it might. I, most yoked people aren't super great at shooting, right? You look at Steph Curry, Clay, Steve Kerr, Reggie Miller. All lean muscle builds, just like
0: Kevin Durant. Is that what happened to my jump shot? Damn, dude. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, so might be a good thing to say. Victor will probably not go the Giannis route. In fact, he strikes me as the guy that's landing somewhere in between, right? Where I don't think if he gets anywhere near with his frame, if he gets anywhere near Kevin Durant, like skill level. Oh my God. You're looking at the, the pretty insane comparison there. But if he can put on a couple pounds and kind of be that in-between where he could step out and also body people inside, that's insane. I mean, even they're probably going, not certainly not going 100%, but even with that video that surfaced with him playing one-on-one against Rudy Gobert, it's just crazy to see him step out on NBA guys like that, get them shaking on on the heels and do like a step back 18, 20-footer. I mean, that young, I think at that time he was maybe 17. That's crazy. But don't sleep on Scoot. I've been following Scoot for a while too. I know we're talking a lot about Victor, but went to Ignite at 17 years old. So I think he graduated or at least reclassified, right? So I think he like got out of high school early. Couple, obviously the biggest names in college, eyeballing him with every offer that you can imagine. But really well-rounded player, really talented player, plays on both ends. Like one of those crazy freak offensive talents that just, just has it. Like reminds me of a like a Monte Ellis, right? Just like, where did you get all that in such a short amount of time is like just a very good scorer. So it was cool to see those two match up in a setting like that.
1: Always, yeah, it's exciting to see these young prospects come up. And I hope... Victor goes to summer league and we're able to watch him. I certainly will wanna get tickets to that game. But I one thing before we can move on from the next topic is I do think he probably has a little bit of like a, a worst case scenario is looking like a Porzingis type situation, right? And a best case scenario sort of Kevin Durant, but even bigger. And that's a really that's a nice range, especially if you're thinking from a general management perspective. I know Porzingis has not been at the level that people are excited about. That's 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 an exciting range to play from, uh, certainly.
0: Yeah, that's true. Another quick thing in regards to the upcoming draft class that's widely regarded as the best one we've seen in probably a decade. Going through there, two twins on there, the Thompson twins, and it was really cool to see everyone either has G League, some sort of country, or some college associated with their name as the first time I've ever seen overtime elite on the draft board. So shout out to the guys at Overtime. Overtime. That's crazy. Putting together a league like that is really difficult to do. And they're getting the consensus top five high school players in the country to go and play. That's an amazing feat to to pull off. And I think they're projected mid to late lottery. Actually, back to back, both twins. That was super cool to see. Love seeing the more dynamic names as a part of the game than ever before. So Does that mean they're twinning? Oh, God, dude. You you need one boomer reference per. Hey, per. hey, William, edit that out. Edit that out. No, I'll keep it in there to show everyone. Boomador, dude. <laughs> Boomador is back. Two that you always, what I've noticed dude, we've never talked about this. First time we're going to talk about this is oh, live. live, huh? You, you do the first, you usually do the boomer reference. And you're also the first one to do an explicit tag. I noticed like I have this ongoing joke in my head. We'll go like, you go like 33 minutes in the podcast and then you drop an F and I'm like, I got to put the explicit tag on Spotify.
1: Damn, dude. Yeah, (laughs) I definitely, I've gotten better at not swearing, but yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Granted, we're all adults. It doesn't matter, but it's just funny. I'm like, oh, wow. Like I got to put the, I got to put the little E next to the episode in Spotify, but. It's all good. Dude, do your thing. This is what it's about. If you want to F-bomb the whole time, that's what we're here for. Sounds so ridiculous, but I think very much. (laughs) Looping back, we certainly haven't talked about this publicly together, but I'm sure people either following in the Discord or on Twitter kind of saw the Phoenix Suns Sarver minority stake grow up for grabs This is probably a lengthy session, but we both just discussed that we don't have any hard stops. So let's get into it. Let's go back to the original news of the story breaking that. So Sarver gets suspended and a $10 million fine and said, there's no chance in hell that he sells the team. Almost 24 hours later, right? He announces that he is selling the team and we're getting texts, we're getting DMs, we're getting tagged on Twitter. Hey, you guys should, this is your shot. Let's do it. So uh, I want to take this step-by-step and maybe go slow. Like when you first heard the news that his 35% stake was going up for sale, what was your initial reaction personally? And as it pertains to Krause house?
1: Yeah, personally, I felt like it was, it's exciting to always see new ownership get involved. And so Felt that that's always good energy to bring in some new owners from a crowdsource perspective. I was I don't want to say bummed because that's not quite the right word, but just like felt like it'd be a really complicated scenario for us to step into. You have this unknown new structure that we are trying to kind of work with ownership groups that currently are open minded and excited and interested about this space, and then you have this urgent open market well a lot of publicity it's an espn front page and you can imagine that's the exact opposite and then there's gonna be urgency right and then you also have a, a rush to the highest bidder not necessarily the highest value add owner on the cap table as well so it was just kind of like from our narrative perspective a lot of things going against us uh also rumors of the valuation going up and up and up and up as well so the delta on the thesis started going down and down but i think that as I sort of mulled on, I think you and I talked to some kind of friends and peers, it sort of dawned on me like, hey, there's at least an opportunity here to bring the idea to the public, bring the idea to the different majority ownership groups, tracking down who's bidding and how do you get a hold of them and networking your way is a challenge in its own right. But that's probably a really productive process in learning a bunch and exposing the idea. And so my kind of position on it changed pretty dramatically of saying, we need to talk to every single ownership group about this idea, why it's interesting. And then you start to realize a lot of these folks already own assets in other leagues or potentially already in the NBA, maybe for minority positions. And it gets really interesting and compelling. So it's certainly been taking a, a big chunk of our time, prioritizing and focusing on networking to these groups, getting the pitch, getting in front of the decision makers, explaining it, and then trying to work on the next bidding group to, to be able to continue to have multiple shots on goal. So it's been exciting now in that way. What's been your journey with it?
0: Yeah, I think every once in a while, looking back, there's been these moments of just kind of inspiration and motivation about the community and what's been constructed at Crosshouse. And that was one of those moments where I had the exact same intuition as you. In fact, the more public the sale, I think what I had thought was the worse our chances, right? Because you get celebrities coming in you get private equity coming in you get billionaires coming in there's just it's really tough to separate signal from noise in such a such a spotlighted event and these deals happen so fast right just like an venture the hot deal can get closed really quickly and this was one of the hottest deals that we've seen but the inbound that we got from people with like people that really cared and really wanted to see this happen was so divert, like people I hadn't talked to in a really long time, maybe since early days of Crosshouse, people that I've talked to on the venture side of things were just like, Hey, I might know this person. Do you want me to reach out? And it was just crazy to see that of like a bunch of people coming together as a collective to at least try to make something happen was really exciting to see again.
1: I just want to highlight that is that we've talked about what is a Dow and a worst case scenario. And I've talked about I think at worst case, it's like this alumni network. And what is an alumni network? How do you tokenize an alumni network? And what does that mean? And what does the DAO do? And like all these questions. And what I think what you just articulated is the magic of that version of that, like how valuable that as a standalone entity is, even if DAOs can't achieve the ultimate vision of DAOs. And to your point, like, the power for us to go through and say, "Hey, does anyone our network know?" I think the list, by the way, was it's, it was like this was publicly available, but it was like Jeff Bezos, Larry Ellison, uh, Lorene Powell Jobs, Bob Iger, and like Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> it's, and Crosshouse. And Crosshouse. That was the CBS. Shout out to CBS for including us in the mix because uh, they believe, uh, but. This, yeah. We were literally sending DMs and conversations and tapping the network, saying, "Does anyone have a path to any of these folks?" And some of, to your point, some of our associates were like, "Oh, dude, did I just have Jeff Bezos and Larry Ellison's number in my phone?" <laughs> nah, dude. But there were other people who were like, "Oh, actually, I know so and so's, you know, nephew, and he works at this at this company doing this. I'd be happy to reach out." And it was like, it's amazing when you almost take the how many degrees of Kevin Bacon was it seven, six degrees of Kevin Bacon? Six, yeah, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And you apply it to a shared audacious goal and you explicitly publicize that to the world. And then you have then this intention of like, okay, how can we get our degrees to Kevin Bacon for our crazy goal and make that all happen in this very sort of access oriented asset space? It's crazy. It is like, I will be the first to tell you, DAOs have found another use case, which is six degrees of Kevin Bacon your way to getting in front of key decision makers for insanely amazing ideas.
0: It's funny because you think of all those as a financial transaction, right? This is kind of, this is wild. Basically, if you were to, let's say you were to do this by yourself, right? Would you pay one one thousandth of your governance for a introduction to somebody just like that might be able to help? right? Not even necessary, and depending on what that connection is, would you give up some sort of say or ownership in whatever you're trying to achieve for that introduction? And I think that's a crazy concept is it, to think about. It's like As you start to grow this network of networks, like you said, that six degrees, I think one of the reasons what is so special, maybe symbolically about being listed with those names in, in that CBS article, is that when you take someone like Floyd Mayweather or Shaquille O'Neal, our collective network is probably bigger than theirs right like yeah. it it has to be right with you're talking about 6000 or 7000 people their first or second degree c- connections uh, have to rival some of those guys like that's crazy to see a group of that and like that's what made me so proud is that these guys all have access to capital and have great social capital and whether or not we're there yet to rival them on either, it doesn't really matter. It's just that line item wasn't a person, it was a collective.
1: That's pretty mind blowing. That's a really great point. Like it's a list of six names, and then the sixth name is not an individual. And like it's all apples and then one orange. And it's if you take a step back for a second you say, wait a second, they listed an orange in the list. That's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. It, I think one thing you, you touched on with the celebrity on this. It's like celebrities have the ability of doing cold outreach and saying, hey, I'm Floyd Mayweather, I'm Shaquille O'Neal, I want a meeting. There's social capital oh yeah, we'll at least hear out that meeting because you are who you are. Mm-hmm. And to your point, there's like this DAO, it's almost like the opposite. It's because we've reestablished this network organization, it's sort of the opposite. Although what's happening is we're starting to build a reputation across In some cases, we're having some of the meetings, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We heard about you, your articles floated in the organization. Like." Super happy to connect, right? And so now all of a sudden, if you think about that at scale, where you have the celebrity effect to knock on doors and have them open because of what you are, and you have the inverse of that, which is the actual, like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon effect. I mean, that is not, that's not twice as powerful. That's an order of magnitude more powerful. It's a really compelling use case for DAOs that I think we've, again, the crypto ecosystems almost skated past it. It's like, yeah, 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 cool. Like we have a bunch of humans that are coordinated, but let's like do these things and that things and connect. it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. We just figured out a way to align 10,000 people to just be happy to intro you people to some of the most exclusive contacts that the people have in their entire life. Yeah, that's actually a really big deal, dude. Really big deal. Huge.
0: Yeah, huge. Yeah, fast forward. We don't really know where things stand. We do have some back channel that says, hey, if a guy like Jeff Bezos comes and shows interest, sounds like people are running for the hills. You do not want to get into a bidding war with Jeff Bezos by any stretch of the imagination. But it's like I, the progress kind of seems to be somewhat in limbo at, at this state. Rumor is some people maybe dropping out, some people are gaining some appetite on there. So TBD, but still in hindsight, Here's what's crazy to me is that this is what I love about this is I had an opinion personally of our best chances of making something like this work. And it was like, and again, just one man's opinion. No one has ever done this. So you can't say it's right or wrong. And I beat that drum consistently because we have to continue with these experiments because no one's ever done this. So I think considering how exclusive this group is with owners that I think the path to get there would make them feel more comfortable if it looked somewhat traditional, right? So like coming from a very strong introduction, dealing with a small kind of group of people, let them see the value of the community in other ways, but it's gotta look like more of a traditional deal, except, hey, we're coming in with an entire community of people to do this. And what I love about the Suns thing, regardless of where it is in its current status is, it was it tested the exact opposite. That's the antithesis of my opinion. Is we didn't know any of them. In fact, it's the it's one of the most high profile sales we've seen of an NBA team in a while because of Sarver in the new cycle that everything going on there. And people said, "Hey, what if we just tweeted at pet people? And what if we just went to DMs? And what if we just... It was very public. There is." Like it was, that piece of it was successful, right? Like getting in touch with some potential owners and trying to actually see at least people willing to hear us out. And I think that is fascinating. And I think that means that no matter which way you do this, you could be successful. And I think the more people attacking these different dimensions on actually finding out how to do ownership, the better. I think now that I've seen at least pieces of success going with two radically different approaches makes me so excited. I'll be the first one. It makes me so fucking excited. Put that explicit on there. That hey. There's actually a shot here. And I think someone else would come with something in between. I don't know quite what that looks like, but here's what I think is the best approach. And I'm going to get some velocity behind this because I'm super passionate about this angle and whoever is with me and agrees, let's go figure this out. And that just, that's just such an incredible way to kind of tackle such a broad and ambitious mission. That I think Dallas lends itself nicely to doing where this couldn't exist in a typical structure. It would only have to be one way. And so anyway, that was an eye-opening experience for me.
1: Yeah. I recently read a quote by Mark Andreessen and he's a really prominent venture capitalist founder of Netscape, but he had this really great quote. And I thought as this was happening, it just came back to me. It's like, the world is a very malleable place. If you know what you want and you go for it with maximum energy and drive and passion, the world will often reconfigure itself around you much more quickly and easily than you would think. And I would say if there's been one true quote for my personal journey with Krause House, it's that quote.
0: I've read that too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. And we didn't speak about it either. I read that and I was like, damn, that's highly applicable to the things at Krause House. People are shocked to find out how little social capital we had in sports, right? Like they're literally mind blown. But something is it didn't really matter too much because a lot of the people that were early days Cross house didn't have a high social capital in the sports world either it was just basically mission and then like we always talk about that network of networks and the network effects of those networks sorry a lot of networks there that's what kind of attributed to some of the early traction that we have and now it's just exploded and i yeah i loved reading that because i think that's exactly what happened i don't think there's been more drive around something for the majority of people i talk to that are pretty consistent contributors at crosshouse is they consider something i don't think i've had drive like this to do something in a really long time which is always great to hear yeah
1: it's so i think on the yeah on the sun's front it's been interesting to hear about some of the inner workings understand how the capital approach and the different bidders and whatnot and learning different pieces and trying to get ourselves involved in it. And you know, I think I would share back to the community is that we continue to be met with optimism blended with pragmatism, right? And they'll say, hey, this is a really great idea. That's a really crazy idea. I see a world where this works. I think the paths that you're trying to go in and doing it in a structure the MBA can feel really comfortable with and the owners can feel really comfortable with makes sense. I think the pieces that we still have to figure out is the terminology. I think the legal structure mechanism works as well, but I think getting them more quickly, more familiar with it. I think it still takes a lot of words to get someone's head wrapped around it. So you have to be a bit of a believer out of the get-go and then all the words start to make extra sense, right? Whereas if you're cynical or somewhere in the middle, it just takes a lot of time working through there. But it's been fascinating. I continue to be more optimistic than anything having talked to multiple groups now and just hearing their questions their concern areas and we have really good answers for really all the tough questions and the right structures and mechanisms to deliver something that makes sense for all parties but it's also a time and kind of numbers game right like it it takes time to even get on people's calendars and then you meet and then they have follow-up questions and then those loops take time. And then you're trying to have another conversation with another group and it's this really strange thing. And then they're moving urgently on their bid and so, they're distracted with any of these tangents. So it's hard enough for them to get the liquidity they need to go put forth the bid, let alone we dealing with any future minority owners. It's just complicated. It's really long sales cycles and complicated sales cycles. And then there's a lot of social capital involved in these sales cycles. It's not a B2B sale where it's like, Oh, yep, like this would reduce my email server costs by 22% done. Let's sign the contract and I'll have my director of operations implement this. It's a very strange, nuanced, small group of people trying to get warm introductions. Cold introductions are almost meaningless, almost hot level of warmth introductions and just a strange game. But it's been an honor to continue to work on this and push those conversations forward and get the idea out there. And knock on wood here, we'll make something happen soon.
0: Absolutely. So we have one more thing. Did you want to touch briefly on governance 2.0? I know there was a high profile, big update, if you will, a version controlled update for our governance system. Anything you want to briefly go over some notable big changes in the new governance process, anything to spotlight and highlight?
1: Yeah. So governance 2.0 at Krause House has been written as a proposal. It's been voted upon passed by a big majority it's a really interesting framework we've talked about it a lot but i just i thought it would be interesting to just touch on a couple of key things one is it's really built around this idea of kind of permissions and roles and so a lot of organizations and thinking is often this person has both roles and permissions in tied up in the person and it's trying to decouple that and say okay there are just Permissions out there, those can be created, they can be destroyed, they can be transferred. People's roles can be changed and giving the token holders the power to do that. So instead of the token holders have to doing everything like proposal by proposal, they have finer kind of surgical equipment to that kind of combines to be able to do a lot of different things. So as I think about it almost as making everything into Lego pieces and then giving the token holders the ability to change out one Lego piece. And so I think that fundamental structure is really powerful. It's early for us. But it's really exciting. The second thing I want to highlight is that we're really playing with this new idea of taking our ENS name and having an attribute that points to the governance state of the DAO and that structure right now it's hosted on GitHub, which we don't love. We're looking at maybe using radical there's a bunch of pros and cons to using something like GitHub versus radical, but it's this idea of having a git style repo that has versioned. Of course it can be forked. It can be modified. People can create their own changes that object. So when a proposal goes past and it's live, it's attached to a commit that's saying this is the new update. So it's a very text heavy version of the governance. But what it'll say is, okay, so let's say someone new wants to run the Twitter account. It's basically an explicit permission saying, okay, we're going to generate this new permission. We're going to grant it to this individual. The community can, of course, change that in the future if they want. But this commit is changing the governance state of House in the repo that says, okay, this new person has the Twitter logins. And that's now it's verifiable. We can also look at the the chain. It's mostly immutable. And we say, okay, that person has permission to go do that. And if this proposal passed, this commit is the one that will be updated on the ENS. And so I just really love this like kind of simple, it's almost like snapshot, like this next step of taking snapshot into this next level of more end-to-end governance process, which is at least now we can point to these different objects and say, this is the current state, that was the past state, and then we want to make this change, and then here's what that diff log looks like, and go execute it. So I just love that we have this kind of central source of truth now on our ENS record that the multisig can basically execute, and eventually that could be smart contract that is directly tied through like reality module or something like that through Gnosis Safe that actually executes it. So a lot of words. And of course, for the governance nerds, I hope that was helpful and exciting. But to play that back, I think there's kind of two key things. First thing is that governance 2.0 allows for roles and permissions to be more surgical for the kind of contributors as well as the token holders. And then the second thing is that we are hosting that in this transparent and relatively immutable structure on the ENS record that's pointing to the repo. And I think that's a really cool novel structure that I haven't seen. So the actual governance process and all that stuff for any like people who are interested in contributing or writing proposals is the exact same. Any NFT holder can create a proposal You can get feedback on it through our town halls or post it directly into our Notion site. You get a bunch of feedback on it. You'll get a valid proposal. Thumbs up from the steward team that just confirming that the proposal is structured in a way that is valid, has a scope to it, has a specific ask, et cetera. And then we go ahead and vote on it and then we add that commit that is saying, okay, if this proposal passes, here's what it is. So I'm thinking about doing a full Governance 2.0 nerd out episode on the old Armada podcast series. So maybe I'll plug that next time if and when I record that. But uh, I just want to give people an update because it's, it's really exciting. And I think it's another great step in the right direction. And of course, there's two ends of the spectrum of kind of, you know, hey, this kind of social DAO, figuring it out and doing these elements all the way to a full DAO governance platform. I'm a believer that kind of building and solving our explicit needs, solving problem by problem is the future. And I think this is a perfect step in that direction.
0: Awesome. Thank you for highlighting the new... Oh, step that energy up, Flex. Be like, Woo! Governance 2.0! Let's go! Uh Yeah, if you can't tell my voice, there's other things that excite me more in the DAO ecosystem than governance. But... It's really awesome. I love to force myself to dive deep into it. I think there's some paradigms (laughs) in there that go ahead, get it out.
1: You just sounded like a, I don't know, like a PBS style, like a child goes up there and does a terrible little dance (laughs) routine for donations. You're like, thank you, Timmy, for your dancing to the telethon for the donations. If you guys are interested, maybe it's an NPR plug, right? Like an NPR host reading for a Wikipedia donation is what you sounded like. If you enjoyed (laughs) reading this Wikipedia article, i would be really appreciative if you gave us Mm -hmm. 99 cents. If only 10 million people gave us 99 cents, we'd have just under $10 million
0: and we'd be able to run the servers. <laughs> right. So thank you. I'm just getting flamed right now. Um, <laughs> no, it's, I actually did for it. Cause I, what I love about it was there's some, I think this is very aligned with any sort of innovation process and this kind of piecemeal work that needs to happen in order to achieve something that's brand new and constantly changing is that it's the, been the perfect mix of how I think Web3 views governance mixed with some interesting kind of theories and paradigms that other kind of DAOs are exploring. But then probably most importantly, we applied what is uniquely suited for House to it. And I think that was really got me excited when I really decided to dive deep and really understand what was going on and the new permissioning types and, and, and just in general and I'm somewhat familiar to be fair with Euron's with Governance 2.0 model as well which the Crosshouse is loosely based off so anyway a lot of hard work put into that and so I'm certainly excited to see that cool we're going to wrap up this episode but we got an exciting one for next week we got the official Crosshouse NBA season preview episode woo yeah come on yeah that one you get hyped about how's that i was gonna say how's that for excitement spoiler Um,
1: alert bucks and six so sorry folks i'm not
0: surprised yeah so definitely check that one out it is upon us we are what's that 14 days two weeks from season tip so it's that time of year bucks and six (laughs) damn damn baby all right thank you guys for joining us and we'll see us next week